Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife and part three of our Dominate the Match series. We hope you've been enjoying this series so far and have found our tips and tricks helpful throughout the residency application cycle. First, let me start by saying congratulations to all our amazing medical students who have successfully completed their ERAS applications. Now, as the cycle continues on, we're ready to help you tackle the next challenge, interviews. Once again, I'm Jessica Millar, PGY4 General Surgery Resident at the University of Michigan, and I am so happy to be joined today by Dr. Jeremy Lippman, Professor of Colorectal Surgery, Director of Graduate Medical Education, and Previous General Surgery Residency Program Director at the Cleveland Clinic. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks a lot for having me. One of the first things we'll talk about is something that only a handful of medical students have ever had to go through, and that's interviewing virtually. This will be the third year that residency programs have hosted virtual interviews instead of in-person interviews. So let's start with the setup. What are some of the best places for students to conduct their interviews? So first of all, thanks a lot for bringing this important topic to Behind the Knife and Hopefully this will be helpful and allay some anxiety for those going through the process. Thinking about the best place to do it, the ideal, I think, is to be as bland as possible. Finding a location where you're going to be against a corner or against a wall that doesn't have much on it. You don't want the focus of the interview to be on whatever crazy thing is going on behind you. You want the focus to be on you and the content that you're sharing with your interviewer. So a bland background, somewhere quiet. Somewhere there's not going to be a lot of shadows, a lot of distraction is probably your best bet. You bring up a good point about the background. I've heard that you should include personal items or not include personal items. In your opinion, what are some great things to include or not include in your background? If you are going to have something in the background, it should be relevant and it should be something you're willing to talk about. So, for instance, if you have a picture of your spouse and your child there, that just became a acceptable part of your interview where it wasn't previously. No one can ask you or no one should be asking you about your marital plans and your relationships and your or children. But if you've got a photograph of them in the background, then now that all became fair game. So if you want to talk about that stuff, great. If you are an artist and have written about some of the artwork that you've done or sculpture, having those things in the background could be fantastic because you can really showcase what you've done. Uh, in the past, it was always hard to know. People would say, oh, I did this art and I'm a sculptor and this and that. But now you can actually have it right there for people to see, and that can be fantastic. So just be thoughtful about it. There are a lot of technical requirements for interviewing virtually. And so what are some things that students should have or think about purchasing? So that way then they are set up to be successful for their interviews. Right off the bat, I want to remind everyone that you are saving a ton of money on virtual interviews. It's not uncommon for people to spend thousands of dollars going around the country to do their interviews. Take a little bit of that money and invest in some good tech. Make this virtual interview process as good as it can be. Get a good camera, get a good light, something that's gonna not have you in a lot of shadow, not be glaring off of your glasses or off of your face and is just gonna make you look and sound the best you can. A good quality microphone is a, a tremendous investment. The Wi-Fi service you're using, time to bundle up. Let's you know go up to the highest level, get the fastest speed, make sure you've got the right router, that everything just functions flawlessly. 
any of those things that you can do to upgrade, this is the time to do it. Get a good computer, something that's going to be reliable. You don't want those to be problems that mar your interview. You want to be memorable for the stuff that you're doing and not as the person who either looked crazy because of their lighting, you couldn't hear, or the computer kept cutting out so we couldn't really understand them. I think it's totally worth investing in these key pieces of equipment. One other thing that students have recommended to me are laptop stands. They help to elevate your computer so you're not looking down at your computer screen, but rather looking up at your interviewer. Virtual interviews have a tendency to be different due to the lack or differences in nonverbal communication. How should students practice their virtual interviews and who should they be practicing with and what types of things should they be paying attention to, especially things that may come across differently in a virtual interview? Some of the nice things about the virtual format are if you keep your hands low and your camera is, you know, just above, you know, on your chest and above, they can't see you fidgeting, they can't see your toes tapping, and those things that might have been distractions in an in-person interview aren't going to be an issue. Practice is key. I would definitely find friends, ideally medical friends to start with, colleagues in your class that you can practice just how does it look? How does it sound? Uh, what does my setup look like? Do I sound funny? Am I echoing? Does the lighting look good? Do all of that stuff with them. Um, Barb Pettit, who's uh, at Emory University, had a great idea, which is take a little picture of your spouse, partner, child, pet, plant, whatever the thing is that you really care about, and tape it right next to your camera. So you feel like you're just talking to Mr. Whiskers rather than having this sometimes anxiety-producing interview. And that can help to make it look more like you're looking in the camera and that you have eye contact. I think something else that may be a great resource at a lot of universities, and of course this depends on where students are at, but many universities have offices of career development, and they often will offer virtual mock interviews for students. These sessions are often recorded, and they'll sit down and review it with you afterwards. So if you're at a school that offers this, I highly recommend you take advantage of it. The other thing, too, that people tend to focus on is attire. What are some of the do's and don'ts of virtual interview attire? It again comes down to practicing and seeing what things look like. You want to dress professionally. You want to look uh, like someone who's going to be a physician, a surgeon. You want to be wearing business attire. Suit and tie is appropriate and the you know equivalent for for women just as you would if you were going to an in-person job interview you know they used to be these things about oh you should only wear black and you know you have to be very traditional and very conformist i don't think that's necessary anymore it's you know i think we're way past that um but i do think you should be mindful of what it looks like on zoom is going to be different than what it looks like in person and if you have things that are very shiny or sequins or, you know, very tight lines, sometimes that can come across as sort of fuzzy looking. So see what it looks like on, on your friend's camera when you record yourself, see what it looks like, make sure it looks healthy and, and normal. Uh, a lot of people like to wear the ear pods, which is fine. If you're doing that, just be mindful. If you're wearing that plus earrings, it can look a little crazy sometimes. Again, just pause, take a look at yourself. I know most of us try not to look at that picture of ourselves on the Zoom, 
but see what it looks like. Do you, do you look like a professional person who's about to become a surgeon and take on this tremendous responsibility? Um, I don't think you have to wear all black. I don't think it has to look like you're going to a funeral. You know, you can absolutely show some color and, and show yourself and, but, but look professional, look business attire. All right, so it's the night before the interview. Different programs will often use different software. Some use Zoom, some use Teams, some even use a third-party application. So what are some things students should be doing the night before to make sure everything goes smoothly the next day? First, absolutely need to check time zones. This country is crazy. Even in some time zones, this one follows daylight saving, this one doesn't. So make 100% sure what time is it at the place that you're interviewing because you're not going to be there. You can't just ask somebody. Certainly uh, set your alarms, make sure you're going to be up early. Take a careful look through the software that they're going to want you to use. And I would strongly encourage this not to be the night before, to be at least the day before so that if you do have a problem, you can call the coordinator, get help, get something downloaded or updated to you uh, if you identify a problem. At 10 o'clock at night, no matter what time zone you're in, that's not going to fly. Check out the software, load it up, try it out, see what it looks like. You know, it may, sometimes it flips your image and maybe you look a little bit different and want to think about where you're sitting. Again, re-examine what does your space look like? Talk to the people around you. You know, I'm going to have this interview from these hours to these hours. Can you stay out? If the, the dog is going to be noisy, maybe ask it to go to a friend's house for the day. Uh, so get all those things set up. Set the alarms. The morning of, you know, you want to wake up early enough that you can sit down for your interview and be ready, ready to go. It, it shouldn't be you're waiting for your coffee to kick in or you haven't eaten yet. You shouldn't be snacking during the interview. Uh, all that should be done and, and set by the time that you actually log on. Uh, as you mentioned, some programs use all these different software things. So make sure it works. Make sure your login works. Make sure you've got your password written down. And make sure you have a backup nearby. So if you're going to be on your laptop, have your phone ready. Know the phone number to the coordinator. Have the website written down. You know All these things to be prepared so that if something happens, you can correct it quickly. I think you bring up a great point, too, of having emails and phone numbers of coordinators readily available because things happen. Internet goes out, at least where I live, on a completely sunny day. So being able to contact people quickly when things like that happen, often they're very understanding, but having that contact information available, I think, is a great point. The virtual interview definitely has a lot of new challenges, but at the end of the day, the questions are more or less the same. So let's move into the most common interview questions and ways students should think about answering them. I think the one that I dreaded and had to work the most on was the very generic, so tell me about yourself. It's usually how every interview starts. So what do you think are the best ways for students to tackle this question and open the conversation? We often don't like to talk about ourselves and to highlight our accomplishments and whatnot, but this really is the time for you to convince the program that you're meeting with that you're going to be uh, a great resident, that you your needs align with what they can offer, and that they're going to be proud to have you there. So that's the message that you want to sell, and that you're an interesting and engaging person, uh, someone that they're going to want to spend you know four, six, eight, ten hours in the operating room with long day in clinic that you're going to be someone that they're going to enjoy spending time with. Keep in mind that the interviewers probably have some instructions. They may have a list of questions they need to get through or a, a bullet checklist of items that they want to learn about you, uh, research, background, outside activities, 
academics, future career plans, those kinds of things. And so if the, so tell me a little bit about yourself takes 10 minutes, that's going to be a big problem because now you've lost all that other time. This is where your practicing really comes in handy, either watching your own videos, working with your career counselor, or just with a friend, or even just talking to your pet or plant. Thinking about a few stories that you want to convey, I think is really useful. Uh, I usually tell our students to try to create five different stories that they want to tell and share with their interviewer. And number one is their background. How did they get to where they are? And in that, you want to try to highlight things that are unusual and unique about yourself that are going to make you stand out. At the end of an interview season, the interviewing staff have seen 90, 100, 150 applicants. And if you are just sort of a bland person, maybe with excellent credentials, it it might be difficult for them to remember you when it comes to match time. Whereas if you've told some incredible story about the galaxy you discovered during your home astronomy hobby, then you'll be remembered for that throughout the whole time. And maybe it's an industry secret that I shouldn't be sharing, but I think many of the program directors tend to sort of do the shortcuts where you're no longer, you know, the superstar, all A's, wonderful research and everything student, but you become, oh, the galaxy person. And it's like, oh yeah, I remember the galaxy person. Oh, they were great. You want to get something memorable like that that's going to carry with you throughout this whole process. So if you have things like that in your background, work those into that. Tell me about yourself. Uh, I think some of the other things to be prepared for are the the things that you would expect. Why are you going into surgery? Uh, Where do you see yourself? 5, 10, 15 years. Tell me about some research interests. If you have research on your CV, totally fair game for the interviewers to ask you some details about it, especially if it's something of their interest. Take a look through those papers that you may have worked on a while ago and be ready to talk a little bit about it. Many programs are moving towards behavioral style questions. These are questions that usually begin with, tell me about a time when, tell me about a patient who, tell me about an experience that, where they want you to reflect and Bring something from your past that's going to help them to better understand you as a person. Tell me about a challenge you've overcome. Tell me about a difficult patient that you uh, took care of. Tell me about a time you disagreed with your team and how you dealt with that. And they're using these, one, to try to standardize the interview questions across interviewees, which is really a best practice and, and should be happening more. And also to really to get to know you and to get to see if the way that you think and approach problems aligns with how the program does its teaching and its goals for the program. If you have in their stories and experiences that are very painful, this is not the first time to be bringing those up. So you either want to practice those until they're not as uncomfortable anymore or leave those out. If there's a patient who had a bad outcome that's still very difficult to talk about, this is probably not the right time to to do it. You definitely want to have practiced your answer to these questions several times by the time you get to interview day. For me, that, weirdly enough, meant a lot of talking to myself in the car and shower and practicing until my answers went from rough, which they will be at first, to something that sounded more professional, especially the tell me about yourself question. You want to get that down to an elevator talk where you can answer in about two to three minutes. You brought up a lot of other common questions, and we'll be sure to include those in our show notes. Things like, where do you see yourself in five to 10 years? Because that's a very forward-thinking question, and programs want to see that you have some long-term goals in mind. 
Why surgery? I got asked that one a ton. So you want to have a good answer other than, oh, I really want to help people. Uh, challenges you've had to overcome, the difficult patient or team situation. The one thing I have seen students do poorly when they answer this question is throwing other people under the bus. You don't want to say the patient had a poor outcome because X person didn't do something. It's not the time or the place or the way to answer that question. Instead, you want to be respectful and show that you're a team player. Other things you should be prepared to talk about include things that you mentioned either in your personal statement or in your ERAS application. Including those is an invitation for programs to ask you questions about them, so be prepared to talk about them. There's also a lot that you have to include in your ERAS application, and honestly, I forgot some of the things I wrote about in my application, so I think it's a good idea to periodically throughout the interview season go back and reread your ERAS application and personal statement so you're familiar with what programs also have in front of them. All right, when helping students prepare for interviews, what are some of the best ways you recommend students practice these questions? Yeah, I think the if you can find faculty, particularly faculty from your education program that are willing to spend a little time with you, that's the best. People that are experienced interviewers who know what the questions are going to be, what the style is like, that can work with you, that's, that's definitely the best. Uh, like you mentioned, the career counseling is often available from your medical school. Uh, but even just taking some of these questions, just like the ones you talked about, and recording a Zoom of yourself answering them, that can be very effective too. And as you noted, you want to practice and you want to be comfortable, but you don't want to sound rehearsed either. You know, you want to find some variation on those themes. Those should sort of sort of be the core, and then you're going to uh, modify around that a little bit as well. I think another thing I just wanted to mention along those lines is that keeping your answers very positive, you know, as you mentioned, not putting other people to blame, not, you know, ending the story with some horrible, tragic outcome that everyone just feels like, what a disaster, you know, and, and then that sort of becomes what you're remembered for. So finding stories that have perhaps challenges, but end on a positive note, everyone does well, everyone likes a happy ending. People may not always remember what you said, but they will remember how you made them feel. So if you can leave your interviewer feeling uplifted or overall positive, that's the best way to leave a good impression. Also, for those students who may not have faculty or other resources to help them practice, the one thing I would recommend are your classmates or your friends. My classmates and I took all the interview questions we could find and think of and wrote them on sheets of paper and threw them into a jar. We then took turns pulling questions out of the jar and answering them in front of each other and giving each other feedback. And if you're looking for questions, the AAMC is a great place to start. They have a comprehensive list of the most commonly asked interview questions available on their website. There are times, though, when programs will ask you questions that you are not prepared for. So when you're trying to answer the random interview question under a ton of stress, what are some tips to help students stay calm and answer intelligently? So one thing to keep in mind is that as much as the program is trying to learn about you, you are learning about the program. And if a program is asking you a bunch of really high pressure questions and, you know, sort of bonkers stuff, that may be a reflection that the program is not well aligned with your learning needs or preferences. And that may be part of the process that they're doing is to identify people that, you know, whatever these crazy things are, that they love that. They relish it and they can lean in and, and have great answers. When you get a question that you're not ready for, it's totally acceptable to pause 
reflect, think about it for a moment. You don't want to just blurt out the first thing that comes to your mind. Take a moment, pause, reflect. And if it sounds really bonkers, it's totally reasonable to just clarify. Make sure you're answering the right question because you don't want to start answering something crazy when they asked you something very straightforward. Uh, so perhaps you misheard. So it's totally fine to clarify. You know, no, as I'm thinking about that, is, did you mean X, Y, Z? Okay, great. Uh, that's crazy, but let me give you an answer. And then you can go from there. It's also okay to ask for time to think about questions. You can say, you know, can I take a second to think about your question? It's a really important question. And I would love to just spend a few seconds collecting my thoughts. I did this during my interview season, and most of the interviewers that I used this with were totally fine and very understanding. Something else is if students have red flags on their application, such as poor step scores, poor grades on certain clerkships, these things are bound to come up at some point during an interview. So how can students best address those? Those you need to be ready for. And hopefully your advisor or mentor from medical school has prepped you. If you're not aware of what the red flags are, that they've shown you what they are. So if you have those, then absolutely you need to be well prepared to answer that question. What happened on your step exam? How come you don't have any research? What happened with this clerkship that you had to repeat? All of those things are totally fair game. And if you have a reasonable answer, and an answer that not only explains what happens, but ideally also shows that you've grown from that situation, it can honestly be turned around very positively without a lot of difficulty. The problems remain when you have a red flag and the answer is, I was treated unfairly, it was someone else's fault, you know, there's nothing I could have done. You know, what did you learn from this situation? Well, there was nothing for me to learn. I didn't do anything wrong. Reflect on it and think about what you learned from it, how you've benefited, how you're now going to become a better trainee because of this experience that you've gone through. Most programs are looking for students and applicants who have a lot of grit and tenacity. And these are great opportunities to show that, that yes, you got knocked down, but you took all of these steps and got right back up. And now look where you are and look where you're going and make the program feel like they wanna be a part of that. Surgical residency is by no surprise difficult. You'll get knocked down a lot, but I think sometimes those students who have proven that they've been able to overcome challenges actually shine a little bit brighter to some programs and someone who's gonna be a successful surgical resident despite any challenges they may face. Something else, there are the illegal questions that programs aren't supposed to ask. Things like family planning, where else have you interviewed, what programs are you thinking about? If they come up, what's a diplomatic way to answer these questions? Yeah, I mean, ideally, the programs should know well what is inbounds and out of bounds. Oftentimes, where the central leadership, the program directors and associate program directors really understand those rules clearly. Some of the faculty that are interviewing may not do so very often, may be new at it, and often are not asking because they want to take advantage of the applicant. They just don't know. 
it's out of uh, just a lack of understanding. So I, I wouldn't necessarily take it as, you know, that the program is malignant and, and is doing these rude things. It's it's often just a lack of knowledge. So if it happens, you know, you you have a few options. I think depending on on how egregious the question is. So things like, so where else are you looking? Where else are you interviewing? I mean, it seems like a very benign question, but that's off limits. You can either say, I prefer not to answer that, which is a little bit awkward, or you can just keep things very broad. You know, oh, I'm really looking all over. Uh, I'm not really bound to geography. Um, you can be honest if you if you so desire. Like, listen, my my whole family is in thus and so state, and I have to stay in that area. Uh, this program is perfect for me because of that. That's you know, if you're okay answering it, that's fine. I think if you're not though, the the sort of broad generic answer is usually the best. When they get a little bit more. Uh, invasive, as it were. Tell me, are you planning to have a family? Are you planning to get married soon? Are you going to have children? That stuff gets uh, dicey. You know, you what are they looking for? Why do they want to know that? Are they looking for family-centered program, or do they not want to have to deal with someone taking parental leave during their residency? So a great uh, response to that that I heard, I wish I could remember who told me this so I could give them credit, is to just flip it around. And say, you know, I really haven't given uh, that much thought. You know, are you married? You have children. Can you talk to me a little bit about what it's like to to have a family as a as a surgeon? And and sort of flip it that way, so it's offloaded from you, and and they get a chance to talk about their family, which perhaps they would enjoy and and can move on to the next thing. You know, if they really push you and you really don't want to answer, you know, eventually you can just come back with, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm really not sure. I'm I'm not comfortable answering that right now. I don't have enough information. You know, I still have a lot of time to figure these things out. But I like that flipped answer as as a, an out if you're getting pushed. I like that tactic. I use the same one in the operating room when I don't know the answer to my attendings question. I just ask another question right back. As the interview starts to come to an end, there's always the question, do you have any questions for me? You want to have something prepared, so what types of questions should students be asking on their interview? And I understand that might change a little bit depending on who you're talking to. So let's say it's a general interview and you're talking to a faculty member and they ask, what questions do you have for me? What are some good questions for students to ask that show that they're interested and engaged with that program? Well, I think getting back to the, you know, what should you be doing the day and night before your interview? It's another thing is going on the website and really scouring the details of the program, uh, looking at the rotation schedule, looking at the hospital structure. Where do people go? What do they do? And taking those notes very thoroughly. It's very easy. In many cities, there are very similar programs, and maybe one is a trauma center and one's not. And if you start asking about the trauma experience at the one that's not, that's not going to look good. So having an understanding of, of what the program offers, I think, is your first step. And the second is seeing what are they really highlighting? If they've got 20 different sections about their simulation center, then that's something they're excited about and proud of. And so it may be something you want to try to bring up and give them an opportunity to showcase a little more. Another of the best things about virtual interviews from both sides of the equation is the second monitor. And if you don't have one, that may be a place to put some of that travel money that you're not spending. Uh, and if not, then at least to buy a lot of sticky notes. And I would recommend that you have a huge list of questions for every program that you're going to, so that you can, one, get your questions answered, but two, never run out of questions. 
you will get some interviewers that at the beginning of a 25 minute interview are going to say, you know, let's just use this time for you to ask me questions about the program. And it's like, great, this is my ninth interview today. I got it. I've read your website. Your program director talked to me for three hours. I met with your residents for two hours. Like I have zero questions left, but nope, you've got a whole second monitor with 25 questions that you can work your way through. It's okay to ask the same questions to multiple people. In fact, for things that are important to you, it's probably a really good idea because if you ask and get three or four different answers, that's a problem. Whereas if everyone is very consistent about whatever the thing is, that's very helpful. And they may have different nuances and understanding. But I think having a long list of questions, you don't want to run out of questions, make sure they're specific to the program and make sure they do provide an opportunity to, to showcase the things they're proud of. I would also recommend doing a quick Google search of your interviewers the day of, just so you can help formulate better questions based off of things such as their research or specialty. Now, program directors and chairs oftentimes have a different view of a residency program or hospital system. So are there any additional questions or different types of questions that students should ask to take advantage of the time they may have with program directors or chairs? That's really valuable time uh, if you have that with the program. So if you have things that are specific to like the HR type stuff, leave policies, benefits, you know, structure of the program, those kinds of things, those are going to be most appropriate for those folks. Uh, keep in mind, if the program director has sent you a webinar to watch ahead of time or they've given a presentation at the beginning, make sure you're not asking things that were already covered. Uh, that just looks like you're not paying attention and maybe aren't invested. It's a, a good time to ask about upcoming changes in the program. If you're talking to the chair, that's a great opportunity to talk about what's their vision for the next five or 10 years of the department. What are they looking to grow and is, does it align with the things you're interested in? As you go through the interview trail, it's a very iterative process and you'll start to see that, oh, this place is developing this program and this place has this resource. And so asking about that can be helpful, you know, asking about the things that uh, that they find align well with their training program. What are they looking for? What makes a great resident? Where do their graduates go? Those are all, I think, questions that are specific for the program director that if asked to general faculty, you're not going to get satisfying answers. I remember coming home from my interviews and thinking of questions I forgot to ask during my interview. Also, as I was going through the interview season, things came up that I didn't initially think of at the beginning, but wished I could go back and ask some of the programs I had already completed my interviews at. So if things come up as you're going throughout the interview cycle or as you're starting to make your rank list, is it okay to reach back out to programs if you have additional questions? Absolutely. Uh, I think the program directors really value that. It shows that you're interested and engaged and serious about learning about the program. So definitely, if you think of questions down the road, it's going to show the program that you're still interested, that you want to keep that conversation going. And who is the best person to reach out to then? Is it the program director or the interview coordinator? I would send to both, uh, but let the program director see that so that they know that you're asking. And they may be the one that can redirect it to someone else if need be. Something else that comes up quite frequently is sending thank you notes after interviews. I think most people would agree that handwritten notes is too much. At most programs, you're interviewing with five to six people, and by the time they actually get your handwritten note, as thoughtful as it is, it's probably too late. But what's your thought on post-interview thank you notes via email? 
Yeah, I don't know if I can speak for all program directors on this because I think there are varied opinions. My personal opinion is it's a huge waste of time. You know, as a program director, I didn't do anything with them. Yeah, and like you said, sometimes they would reach reach me so late it didn't even mean anything. But I made, I can tell you, I made no note of who did or did not send such a thing. Uh, some may, though, so I don't want to say don't do it and then, you know, it's like 10 points on a 20 point scale for another program. And now you can't get the program of your dreams because you didn't send the right note. So I think it's fair to, you know, as you're talking with the residents, maybe you get a sense or maybe you get a sense of the program that it seems like the kind that would or wouldn't, you know, I used to explicitly tell the applicants, do not send a note. It's you're wasting your time. Students will interview at anywhere from 10 to 20 plus programs, especially now with things being virtual and you're not limited by travel constraints. It can be really hard, especially when all you're staring at is a computer screen, to keep programs separated in your mind. How can students help keep their thoughts organized about certain programs, how their interviews went, how they felt about programs? Because eventually they'll have to make a rank list. And if you can't keep the program straight in your head, it makes it very difficult. So what's your recommendation for students? Yeah, definitely need to take notes in real time. At the end of the day is the best time to do it. Um, I used to advise students, you know, when you get back on the plane, that's the time to sit down and do it. But now as soon as you log off, as I mentioned, you know, this is a very iterative process. And as you learn about more programs and see more things that are available, more things will go onto your list of what's important to have and what's important not to have. So keep it updated and just keep adding more and more details. The more stuff you can put in right now, the better it's going to be when it comes time to make that list at the end. And it will also help you, to your point, to look back and say, okay, well, now I know that these three things are really critical to me, but I didn't know that at the beginning. So I'm going to reach back out to those early programs and say, you know, where are you with A, B, and C uh, to see if it's going to be a good fit for me. Taking the time after an interview day to really organize your thoughts is so important. Now, this process can look very different for different students, so I would encourage you to find a system that works best for you. I remember some of my classmates had these giant Excel files with case numbers, board pass rates, anything and everything you could think about for each program they interviewed at. Now, that always seemed really overwhelming to me, but it was helpful for them. I instead kept a journal, now, it wasn't structured, it wasn't perfect. I just wrote down all the things I really liked or disliked or anything that was really specific about that program that stood out to me. But the main thing I wrote about was how I generally felt about a program. Did I like the residents? Did I feel like I'd be a good fit there? And that was really the most helpful thing when it came time to make my rank list. Just my unfiltered thoughts about a program. Now, again, if journaling is not your thing, that's totally fine. Just make sure you find a system that works best for you. Well, we're almost out of time. And thank you so much, Dr. Lipman, for all of your tips and tricks so far. Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know? I, I think the only other point that I would add is that there are really so many outstanding residency training programs. And it's just about figuring out which of them best aligns with where you want your career to go how you like to learn, what kind of environment you like to be in, what type of location you want to be in. So it's less about finding the good from the bad programs, and it's more about just finding the program that aligns with those things 
that are important to you. So I would focus more on that stuff than on the, you know, is this program going to train me? They're going to train you. You're going to get what you need. You will become a board certified general surgeon if you do the work. The other point I would make is just if you are going through this with a partner, that is step one is stepping down with sitting down with the partner, look at a map, figure out where are you willing to live? Where are you not willing to live? Where do jobs align? How far apart would you be willing to go? How long, you know, all those things I think are the the very beginning steps before you go through the rest of this process. I couldn't agree more. There are no perfect residency programs, but there are perfect programs for certain people. There's a lot of chatter that happens both online and in person about programs that other people liked or didn't like. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is finding a program that you like and will work best for you. That's all that matters. Well, thank you so much again to Dr. Lippman. And if you've liked this series so far, be sure to let us know on our social media pages and feel free to reach out to us with any ideas or future episodes that you'd like to hear. We'll be back in January after you all dominate your interviews to talk about rankless and matching. Until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.